0: To teach you the depth of his word, enjoy the study today thankfully we get to look back on something prophetically that is maybe I don't know if it's the coolest in my mind it's one of the coolest prophecies of the whole Bible and it's it's incredible because you know the only way that the Lord one of the ways the Lord authenticates his message is by writing history in advance and what we're going to study this morning is one of the most significant prophecies in the Bible. And it's, it's amazing. It's, it's an amazing mathematical prophecy about the arrival of Jesus and when he was to show up. So before we open up, let's go to the Lord in prayer, as we always do, and we'll dive right in here. God, thank you so much for this time together. God, I thank you for Zachariah. I thank you again, Lord, for this incredible book that we get to study And as we gather together around your word, Lord, I pray that you would open our ears to hear exactly what your spirit is saying to the churches right now. God, I thank you that we get to study your word to show ourselves approved. And God, I thank you that you are raising up and fostering and strengthening and growing an unashamed bride living for you, Jesus, and looking for you to call us home. Thank you for that. May we occupy until that day. And Lord, teach us everything out of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 Okay, well, you always need the Holy Spirit whenever we study the Bible, but today you're going to really need the Holy Spirit as we study the Bible, because there's there's a lot of math at the end of this, there's a lot of numbers, a lot of timing, and it's going to be really cool. Some of you have heard this before, but... You definitely want to make sure you are locked in today. So stay with me as we dive in here. But Zechariah, you remember he's this post-exile prophet, and he's, he's after Daniel. And so Daniel gives us the prophecy of exactly when Jesus was to show up. What we're going to say today is Zechariah's prophecy of what to look for to know that it's him. And so it's a, it's a little bit of a continuation of the Lord peeling back that veil and giving his people something to look forward to. Now, we're entering into this section of Zechariah that's all about Jesus from here to the end, from nine through 14, okay? And and so far in the book, we've covered a lot of visions about the history of Israel and how the Lord will come back to vanquish his enemies and to restore the, the Jews to the kingdom. But now we're getting into a deep, deep prophecy about the king. And in this book, one through 14, it's all about the Messiah. So Jesus is going to speak of the stone with seven eyes, his throne, and Jesus being crowned, we've talked about that. Jesus the Nazarene, the king riding on a donkey, that's what we're gonna cover today in Zechariah 9.9. The shepherd, his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, and actually what the people did with the money. It's pretty amazing. Jesus being pierced or crucified, and his return in power in Zechariah 14 and destroying his enemies that surround Jerusalem. So we've gone all the way through the book from chapter 1 through chapter 8. Now remember those 10 visions all occurred in one night. There was a span of two years, and then the Lord, he really dove into trying to show the Jews how he's going to turn their, their fasts and their mourning into joy and feasting. And so he's he was encouraging them in chapter seven and eight to put away the fast of mourning and your sorrow, and let's focus on the feasts that are ahead, and that's really where they were. Chapters nine through 11 all deal with the first arrival of Jesus, and chapters 12 to the end of the book deal with the second arrival of Christ, and so you have the next four chapters all about Jesus, his first advent and then his second advent. Okay, the final the final six chapters actually all cover all the way to the establishment of the kingdom. And the first advent of Christ is what we're going to start unpacking today. And like I mentioned, it's going to be a time when Israel's fi- fasts are turned into feasts and their mourning and sorrow into joy and laughter. So the Jews know that a kingdom will be established. And they the reason why they missed Jesus the first time is they were looking for the ruling and reigning king, not the suffering servant that had to die first. So they were looking for a king that was going to come back on this mighty steed and usher in the kingdom, vanquish the Roman Empire, and set up the Jews to rule the world. That's what they were looking for, because there are actually at least eight more prophecies about Jesus doing that than there were about him coming to die and suffer for us. So they were so fixated and focused on, we're going to rule the earth. The Jews are going, to, are going to conquer the earth, and our Messiah is going to usher in the kingdom. They missed that he had to suffer first. And so that's one of the reasons why they rejected him in the gospels. But look at Acts 1, 6 through 7. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, so Jesus speaking, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the father hath put in his own power. So notice that Jesus did not dispute that the kingdom would be restored. They asked, is it time? Are you going to restore again the kingdom? And he never said, no, you guys are missing something in the Bible. Uh, There's no kingdom coming. He said, no, it's not for you to know the time or the seasons of that happening, which means he is going to do it. He simply told them that they are not to know the timing of the restoration. So they know that the Messiah will rule and reign over the entire earth. Now the first eight verses of chapter nine deal with part of the military campaign of Alexander the Great and God's protection of Jerusalem in verse eight specifically. So let's, op- let's dive right into those in verse one, the burden of the word of the Lord in the land of Hadrach and Damascus shall be the rest thereof, when the eyes of man, as of all the tribes of Israel, shall be toward the Lord. Now, the burden of the word of the Lord, that actually shows up three times in the Bible, how this chapter opens up. It's twice in Zechariah and once in Malachi. So that's kind of interesting. Hadrach only shows up here in the entire Bible. Now, it's mentioned in the, the Assyrian kings in their documentation it's mentioned as referenced as an uh, Armenian country near Damascus, just to give you an idea. Now, Damascus is interesting here in Zechariah 9, 1, because we know from Isaiah 17, verse 1, that at some point, Damascus will be totally obliterated and not be a city any longer. And that's in Isaiah 17, verse 1, the burden of Damascus, behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city. And it shall be a ruinous heap. So that hasn't happened yet, which is one of the reasons why when the war broke out in Israel and we spent that one Sunday going through the prophetic wars in Israel and kind of how they lay out potentially in the future, we, looked, we took a deep look at Isaiah 17.1 because Israel has told Damascus and Syria, hey, if you get involved, we will absolutely wipe out and level Damascus. And so you could be looking at the setup there of that actually happening at some point in the future. Okay, and Hamath sounds vaguely similar to Hamas, doesn't it? But Hamath also shall border thereby Tyrus and Zidon, though it be very wise. Okay, so God's declaring a defeat on Israel's historic enemies, and he's beginning with Damascus, Hamath, and the cities of the Syrian and Lebanon territories, so Tyrus in Zidon, or Sidon today, or in Lebanon, modern day Lebanon. Hamath was the main city in upper Syria, just to give you kind of an idea. At the Battle of uh, Issus in Southeast Asia Minor around 333 BC, Alexander the Great defeated the Persians, which opened up Syria, Israel, and Egypt to his speedy conquest. Now, if you haven't studied Alexander the Great much, He was an amazing, amazing general and conqueror. Uh, He took over Greece by the age of 19, and at the age of 30, he fell on his bed and wept because there were no more lands to conquer in the known world at that time. He had conquered the entire earth in 11 years. And he did it with much speed, which is why in Daniel, when Daniel has the dream of the terrible beasts, the kingdoms, the Gentile kingdoms, Alexander the Great represents the leopard with the wings on its back that went so fast it didn't touch the ground and it just conquered very speedily. And so that's, that's Alexander the Great. When he died or when he was on his deathbed, he actually, they asked him, well, who should we give the kingdom to? And he said, give it to the strong. And as a result, his four generals spent the next 300 years fighting over the kingdom. And that's all prophesied in Daniel 11 they divided Greece into four, basically the kings of the north, south, east, and west. And they just fought with each other for hundreds of years until Rome took over the earth. And that's, that gets to the gospel period and Jesus showing up. But Greece, Alexander the Great, amazing history, if you ever go study that. But God prophesies a lot about him in the, in the Old Testament. And much like Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander was an instrument of God, of his judgment on all of these nations surrounding Israel. Okay, in verse three, and Tyrus did build herself a stronghold and heaped up silver as the dust and fine gold as the mire of the streets. Now, Tyre, he's, God is always signaling them out for being prideful, wealthy, and not caring about Israel. And we study this in the men's Bible study, we've been studying actually in Ezekiel, God's judgments on Tyre. So Tyre sit north of, of Israel along the Mediterranean coast in Lebanon, modern day Lebanon. They were very wealthy and prosperous in trade with Egypt. But what happened is when they would cross through the land of Israel, Israel would tax them and as a result took some of their profits. And Tyre didn't like that. And so Tyre was always out when Nebuchadnezzar was besieging Jerusalem Tyre was cheering him on, basically saying, and you can find this in the Psalms and in a lot of places in the Old Testament, crying out for Nebuchadnezzar to kill the children of Israel. And as a result, God turns his judgment on them after Israel. So Nebuchadnezzar goes, he besieged the city actually for 13 years and he could never conquer Tyre because they were on the coast and all they did was they just kept trading by sea. And so they had supplies coming in, they were able to trade food in and out, and Nebuchadnezzar could never conquer it. And finally, he basically gave up, and Ezekiel 29, the last three verses, 19, 20, and 21, God gives Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar for his wages of trying to conquer Tyre. It's very interesting how Nebuchadnezzar was an instrument of God. But Tyre, what they did was they moved offshore and built a new city on an island that God referred to as New Tyre. Okay, so old Tyre was on the mainland, new Tyre off on this island. In verse four here, behold, the Lord will cast her out and he will smite her power in the sea and she shall be devoured with fire. So what happened, they thought they were, they were unstoppable because they were on this island in the sea. And finally, what happened, they never got conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. Well, Alexander the Great comes along hundreds of years later. What he does, he conquered the entire city of Tyre in seven months. And what he did, he pushed all of the old city rubble into the ocean, into the Mediterranean. And he built a land bridge to the island. And he and his troops just marched across that land bridge and totally decimated Tyre on the island. So they were never a city again. And that's actually all prophesied in advance in Ezekiel 26 and 27. Okay, in verse 5, Ashkelon shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall see it and be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for her, her expectation, shall be ashamed. And the king shall perish from Gaza. Interesting. And Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. So only three of the five major Philistia cities are mentioned here. And it's amazing, some of these prophecies may actually look far beyond the local day of Zechariah to what you're looking at today with Gaza and Hamas and everything that's going on. Okay, Goth is not Gath or Goth, however you want to say it, is not mentioned here in these cities. And it was likely folded into Judah at this point, and that's from Amos one six through eight, Zephaniah two four, and Jeremiah 25, twenty five twenty. Gaza withstood Alexander the Great for about five months. And finally, the king was dragged to death and over 100 or 10,000 of their city inhabitants were slaughtered by Alexander the Great. He finally conquered them. And the rest, they sold into slavery. And that's all in Gaza. Pretty amazing. In verse six, and a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. Now, the pride of the Philistines if you're familiar with David and Goliath, those fallen uh, Nephilim creatures that were all over Goth and Goliath and those folks, they actually were the pride of the Philistines and God did cut them off. So he may be referring to that here. But I also this also reminds me of something else though because the word bastard, a bastard here, in our culture we use that in such a derogatory term. You know, and, and, and in fact, Jesus, when he was a child, You can find this in Psalms. The drunkards at the tavern actually were calling him a bastard. They were ridiculing him for not knowing his father. And it's pretty, when you actually study those early years of Jesus' life that are not in the Gospels, you can find that he actually went through a lot of ridicule by people growing up as a child that didn't know his dad. Supposedly, in their eyes, obviously he knew as the father, but you you get the point, that he didn't have an earthly father. But this word here, uh, bastard, mamzer, um, mamzar, however you say that, this word, it literally means a uh, child of incest, Ill- illegitimate child, mixed population, born of a Jewish father and a heathen mother, or vice versa. And it's, it's amazing. It's only used one other time in the entire Bible. And I, find, I think this is really fascinating. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 2, a bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to his tenth generation shall he not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Now, why does God put that there? You know, he always, if, anytime you're reading the scripture, if you find some verse that just is kind of weird and it's, it's put out of place and why is it there, Lord, that is a huge, huge signal to dig in because God's trying to show you something incredible And in Deuteronomy 23, 2, that's exactly what he's doing. So a bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to his 10th generation. Let's look at this real quick. You know, God had a king in mind for Israel all along. And it was not supposed to be Saul. In Genesis 38, when you're studying the book of Genesis, when you get to chapter 38, it's this weird story between Judah and Tamar and how Judah has basically incest with Tamar and they have these children and he tries to deny it. And when you're reading through Genesis, that whole chapter seems like it's really out of place in the story of what's going on in Israel's history and the patriarchs and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes and all of that. But look at 38, Genesis 38 verse 24. And it came to pass about three months after that it was told Judah saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law, hath played the harlot. And also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, bring her forth and let her be burnt. Now, if you remember the story, remember Tamar loses her husband. And Judah's children will not honor her by giving her offspring. In the Old Testament, that's what they were supposed to do. Because family lineage was so important and critical So remember the story, she dresses up um, as a harlot and seduces him, and then they have these illegitimate children, and he tries to hide it, remember? And so when he hears about what Tamar did, because she's with child three months after this, he's like, well, bring her on. We've got to kill her. And of course, he's the guy that did it. And, And when you look at these illegitimate children between Judah and Tamar, they're born in Genesis 38, verses 28 through 30. And Zara starts to come out first. Remember, he gets the scarlet thread wrapped around his wrist. And then he goes back in and Ferez breaks through and is actually the born first instead. Remember, she had twins. And they thought it was dishonoring because there was a breach. The firstborn was supposed to have a lot of rights in the Old Testament. And Ferez supplanted the firstborn and came out instead. Now that name, what's amazing is Perez, is in the lineage of Jesus. And this is why in Deuteronomy when God says, a bastard shall not enter the congregation of the Lord until the 10th generation, that's why this is significant because Perez is in that. Look at this in the book of Ruth, starting in chapter four. At the end of Ruth, God gives you this amazing lineage. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it and the woman with her neighbors gave it a name saying, there is a son born to Naomi and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse and the father of David. So Obed, remember Ruth has David's grandfather, Obed. And this whole story of Ruth is amazing. We may do that book here at church here soon. It's short four chapters, but it's an incredible prophetic book. But look at verses 18 through 22. Now these are the generations of Perez. Why is God pointing you back to Pharaohs? You know, it's this random chapter in Genesis 38, and there's this illegitimate child of incest named Pharaohs who supplants the firstborn and comes out first, and you really don't hear much about him until here in Ruth. But these are the generations of Pharaohs. Pharaohs begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz, Remember, that's the man with Ruth. And Boaz begot Obed, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. So there are your ten, your 10 generations to get down to the king that God had in mind for Israel all along. And it started with an illegitimate child named Perez that was not to be in the congregation of the Lord. He goes, Perez, Hezron, Ram, Abinadab, Nishan, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, and David. You have all 10 of them laid out from Pharaoh to get to the king that God had in mind all along. I think that is amazing how God has that tucked into the Bible for you to go find. Okay, moving on here in verse seven. And I'll take away his blood out of his mouth and his abominations from his teeth, but he that remaineth, even he shall be for our God. And he shall be as a governor in Judah and Ekron as a Jebusite. So the Lord here is declaring that the Philistines who submit and repent to God by removing their abominations, they will be incorporated into Israel. God will show them mercy and bring them into the congregation and give give them life and blessing. Okay. Some of the remnant of the tribes of Canaan will be shown some mercy and those that do not repent and get rid of their abominations, will not. So that's what God is saying here. in Verse eight, and I will encamp about mine house because of the army, because of him that passeth by, and because of him that returneth, and no oppressor shall pass through them anymore. For now have I seen with mine eyes. Okay, what God is saying here, look at uh, in Exodus 14, verse 24. This reminded me of this. I will encamp about mine house because of the army. Because of him that passeth by and because of him that returneth, and no oppressor shall pass through them any more. For now have I, God speaking, I have seen with mine eyes. Now, remember at Exodus 14, verse 24, that God actually looked upon the Egyptians through the pillar of fire with his own eyes, and he was looking at them. He was encamping about his people and staring down his enemies and the enemies of Israel. That's kind of what that reminded me of. Now, in Josephus, Josephus was an ancient historian. He wrote a lot of volumes that that are titled Antiquities of the Jews. And it's not scripture per se, but he was a great historian. He wrote a lot of history. And I found this part fascinating. He wrote about Alexander. This is what he said. Alexander's request for tribute from Israel was refused by Jedua. He was the high priest at the time who refused to break his oath of loyalty to Darius from Persia, the Persian king. And Alexander, in a rage, threatened severe punishment upon Jerusalem as soon as Tyre had fallen, and he had reduced the Philistine strongholds. Now, what the high priest did, he ordered the population to make sacrifices to God, to pray for deliverance, and in a dream, actually, God told him to go and meet Alexander, which is kind of fascinating. So what he did when Alexander was not far off from the city, the high priest led a procession to meet him in full priestly apparel. He was all decked out in what they wore in the temple. And when Alexander saw the vestments and the clothing and, the, the, and what he was bringing out there, he, he actually saluted the high priest because he adored the name of Yahweh and said, he had seen in a dream in Macedonia that this very thing would happen. And I think that's pretty fascinating because Alexander was then presented with prophecies of his own career from Daniel 7 and 8, and he then treated the Jews kindly, and he actually he spared the city. And that's kind of what God's referencing here. No oppressor shall pass through them. So Alexander, even though he conquered Israel, he didn't wipe it out. He, was, he didn't pass through them as an oppressor. And we know that this is also true, no oppressor shall pass through them. The final fulfillment of this will be in the second arrival of Jesus because obviously Rome passed through them and oppressed them pretty greatly. But not with this first arrival. After Alexander's death, the Seleucids and then the Romans obviously were very cruel and terrible to Israel. And the Lord's looking all the way to the millennium of the final deliverance of the city from Zechariah 12 and 14, Isaiah 60, Ezekiel 28, it's all over the Bible, just to name a few spots. So in contrast, though, the conqueror, Alexander, the next two verses call out another conqueror, Israel's own king. So God has all these prophecies about Alexander and what he's going to do and how he's going to come through, but then he shifts focus to Israel, you too have a king, a king that's coming, and this is how you will find who that is. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, upon the colt, the foal of an ass. So Daniel 9, Daniel 9 prophesied when Israel should expect the Messiah to the very day, to the day. Zechariah 9, 9 tells them one of the ways in which they know it is him. And in verse 10, look what the, the Lord says about Jesus. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace unto the heathen and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth. Now, I think that's amazing because the Lord is declaring the scope of the rule of the true king of Israel will be the whole earth. Not just what he promised Abraham from the river Nile to the river Euphrates through modern day Iraq. That's the land that God promised Israel to Abraham, but they've never occupied, but they will in the millennium. And he's saying, But your king, Israel, your king, his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth. That is so cool. Okay, so between verses 9 and 10, the king arriving on this donkey, and verse 10 of his dominion being over the entire earth, there's this interval of time that we are living in right now called the church age. And you can actually find there are actually 24 intervals of time in the Bible that are hidden that encompass the church. And why 24? Well, it's a link to the 24 elders in Revelation 4 and 5 that represent the church. That's why God uses 24. But between verses nine and 10, it's this this hidden age called the church age. And the church was hidden throughout the Old Testament. And you can find that in Ephesians three, three through six. But the rule of the Messiah will remove all instruments of war from his people. You can find that in Hosea one, seven. And his rule shall be over the entire earth, but centered in Jerusalem. And the Prince David, will be the the prince of Israel at that time. Okay, so let's go through this from Daniel real quick. Now, keep your eyes focused because if you have anyone at Thanksgiving that doubts the veracity of God's prophetic word, just take these next few slides and go talk to them at Thanksgiving. And just say, hey, let's just talk about this. You tell me how this was written 300 years before Christ even stepped foot on the earth in the Septuagint, you can prove it, that it was written. Okay, Daniel was a Jewish captive in Babylon. All of you know the story of Daniel, hopefully. He was of royal or princely descent from Daniel 1.3. Now, God told his people to let the land have a Sabbath every seventh year, and they didn't do it for 490 years. They did not obey God's word. They kept tilling the land, tilling the land, and in God's mercy, he let them do this for almost 500 years. But finally, he had to tell them, okay, you owe me 70 years. And that's why they went to Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And it was prophesied all the way back in Leviticus. Leviticus 26, 33 through 35. And I will scatter you among the heathen and will draw out a sword after you. And your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then shall the land enjoy her Sabbaths as long as it lieth desolate. And ye be in your enemy's land. Even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbaths. As long as it lieth desolate, it shall rest. Because it did not rest in your Sabbaths when you dwelt therein. See, God is, is he was prophesying in Leviticus, you're going to keep telling the land over and over and over and over again. And finally, I'm going to have to do something about it. Because I told you not to do that. But that's why they, one of the many reasons they go into Babylonian captivity. And you can find that also in Second Chronicles 36 verse 21, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. So Daniel, shockingly, gets a mighty revelation from God by reading his Bible. Isn't that amazing? He's in the word of God no matter his circumstance. He's in captivity in Babylon. Here he is, a, somewhat a slave in Babylon, but he's been promoted to be the second in command of the entire world, the Babylonian empire, because of his faithfulness to God, but there he is, the temple was in ruins back in Jerusalem, and he still every day would look toward the temple and pray to the Lord and fast and seek his face. It's just incredible, Daniel's an incredible young man. If you get a chance, go study his life. But he's reading Jeremiah, he's reading his Bible, he's reading the book of Jeremiah. In the first year, this is in Daniel nine verse two, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And what he's reading here is Jeremiah twenty-five eleven, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So by this point, they're you know, I don't, I don't know exactly, I think it's 68, maybe 69 years into that captivity. And Daniel knows their time is growing short because he's reading the book of Jeremiah, that they'd be there for 70 years. In Jeremiah 29, 10, it says, for thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. So Daniel sets his face toward God he fasts and prays earnestly, and those are verses 3 through 19 in, the, in Daniel 9. And the intensity of Daniel's prayer, it keeps picking up more and more and more and more. And he is, you can just feel him weeping for his people when you study it. It's an amazing prayer. Daniel had a huge heart for God and a huge heart for his people. And he knew that according to God's word, they would be delivered very soon. And when you get to the last eight verses of Daniel 9, Gabriel interrupts him and gives him the 70 weeks prophecy. And Gabriel always has a word that is linked to the Messiah. Okay, Gabriel. Uh, Michael always has a message about fighting for his people, Israel. Gabriel always shows up and he's got something to do with Jesus, okay? And in verse 24, It says, 70 weeks, this is what Gabriel's telling Daniel, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So in the Jewish culture, and Daniel knew this, but in the Jewish culture, they have weeks of days. They have weeks of months. They have weeks of years, and that's where in our culture we get a seven-day week is from the Jews. Okay, that what the word that Gabriel is using here, seventy weeks, it is literally seven um, years, seven, seven, seventy seven-year periods. Okay, it's shabuyam in the in the Hebrew, literally mean a seventy times seven-year period. So Gabriel's telling Daniel. There are 70 groupings of seven year chunks laid out for your people, Israel. 70 times seven, 490 years is what this prophecy entails. So, who are these 70 weeks of years focused on? They're focused on thy people, that's Israel, Daniel's people, and thy holy city, Jerusalem. And what's the purpose of the total of the 490 year period? It's to finish the transgression. We know Jesus has done that now from Isaiah 53.5. To make an end of sins, boy, that hasn't happened yet. I mean, how many people just yesterday watching football probably were sinning and and yelling? Who knows what? But sin is, oh, yes, we got one hand in the back. (laughs) But to make a reconciliation for iniquity, that happened. Jesus, remember what he said on the cross? It is finished, To tetelestai, paid in full. Okay, to bring in everlasting righteousness, that hasn't happened yet. At least not any of us would notice, right? Everlasting righteousness is not here yet, but according to this prophecy, it will be. To seal up the vision and prophecy, okay, to seal it up. The very fact that you and I can read the entire book of Daniel and have understanding of it tells you that we are in the end times. Because look what Daniel 12 verse nine says. And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Okay, in verse 25 here, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, in Hebrew that word really means king, shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. Okay. So what you have is from 62 plus 7, these 69 weeks from the going forth of the commandment to rebuild the wall and the street in Jerusalem until your Messiah, the King of Israel, will be 69 weeks of years, 69 groupings of seven-year periods, okay? 69 weeks of years. Now, the command to restore and build the wall of Jerusalem happened one time. Uh, there's actually four decrees about, about Israel. Three of them have to do with the temple. One of them has to do with the wall and the street. Now, the book of Ezra is all about rebuilding the temple. And remember, they couldn't get far because the wall was destroyed. And then you come to the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is all about rebuilding the wall. Remember, he is weeping for his people. He's a cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes. And he's usually very happy and joyful And he's sorrowful because he's getting report back home that they're trying to rebuild the temple of Ezra. They're not getting far. God's raised up Haggai to prophesy to them. God's now raised up Zechariah to prophesy to them. And they're not getting it still. And they're not leaning on the Lord and letting him fight for them. And so Nehemiah has this burden to go back and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And it's an amazing book. But after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off or karat, okay, in the Hebrew, literally crucified, but not for himself. So who was he killed for? For us, obviously, right? The whole world, all of humanity. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with the flood and unto the end of the war, end of the war, desolations are determined." So after 62 weeks, thus after the seven plus 62, there's 69 weeks that the Messiah shall be cut off. So after that period of time, the king will show up. He will then be killed. And then there's an undetermined period of time from then until the start. That's why the seven-year tribulation, a lot of people refer to it as the 70th week of Daniel. That's, why, that's from this prophecy The final seven-year period determined for Israel's history is the 70th week that Gabriel gave Daniel in this prophecy. Okay, the the term to be cut off, karat, it's actually derived from God's covenant with Abram. Remember, uh, he cut a covenant. How many of you ever heard that in the business world or anywhere? You've cut a covenant with someone. That's from that phrase when God puts Abram asleep, Remember, the bird is cut in half and laying there, and God, as a fiery furnace, walks in a figure eight pattern, reciting the, the terms of the covenant with Abram, okay, and, and Abram's asleep, so he had, how much did he have to do with the covenant? Not much, right? It's a promise to him about the land, and it's nonconditional. and God recited it, so it will happen. But his death, the Messiah's death, did establish an everlasting covenant for us. Now, in verse 26 here in Daniel, the prince that shall come, that's a title of the Antichrist. The prince that shall come, the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, he's got at least 33 titles in the Old Testament. This is one of them. Now, the people that actually destroyed the temple in 70 AD, they were not of Roman descent. What happened was the Roman Empire, the general, he actually hired people from Asia Minor, think modern day Turkey, Assyria, Syria, uh, Iraq, that whole area, he kind of hired mercenaries, so to speak. And those are the people that came and destroyed the sanctuary. And I think that's fascinating because you'll find a couple times in the Old Testament, the Antichrist is referred to as the Assyrian, the Assyrian. Okay, in verse 27, and he shall confirm the covenant with many, those are the Jews, for one week. So now From the commandment to go restore and rebuild the wall, you have 69 weeks of years until your Messiah shows up. After he shows up, he is crucified. And after that happens, what triggers the start of the 70th week of years or 70th seven-year period is that the prince that shall come, the Antichrist, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, one seven-year period in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. So part of his covenant, and we studied this back in God's prophetic word for a while, but part of his covenant has something to do with the Jews reinstituting sacrifices. And three and a half years into it, he causes that to stop. He goes into the Holy of Holies in the temple and declares himself to be God. And that triggers actually what Jesus referred to as the great tribulation which is the back three and a half years of, the, of that seven-year period from Matthew 24. Okay, for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. That's where Jesus uses that phrase, the abomination of desolation. He gets that from Daniel 9, verse 27. Even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Okay, so the midst, and we know that the temple will stand from 2 Thessalonians 2, Matthew 24, Daniel 9 right here, we know from all over the Bible that a second temple will be built. And I just put this back in your notes so you had it again. But remember the Temple Institute? We looked at them. They've got all the priestly garb made. The, the temple artifacts are rebuilt. Uh, they have the Levites trained. There's a YouTube video on them with a link you can look at. Once they receive the okay, it's a three to four month process for them to build the temple. That's incredible. Okay, the 70 weeks of years, 70 times seven, 490 years are determined for your people, Daniel. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 18? So now that you know all of this, look look at what Jesus says in Matthew 18 and think about this a little more. Remember Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And he gets that from Daniel 9. That's what Jesus is referring to. He's going to forgive Israel all the way up until he establishes the kingdom. In Daniel 9.25, the Messiah, the prince. From the commandment to the Messiah, the prince. Okay, so remember Nehemiah was the cupbearer. And he comes to the king. And you can read this in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And when was the decree given from the king Artaxerxes to go and rebuild the wall and the street again in Jerusalem? Well, you can look this up in history. It's a matter of record. The decree was issued on March 14th of 445 BC. Now, if you're interested, if you're really nerdy like me and you want to get into a lot of details in it, you can uh, pick up a book from Sir Robert Anderson called The Coming Prince. He kind of goes through this in a lot of detail. He published it in 1894. He was the head of Scotland Yard over in uh, the UK. But it's the only decree that dealt with the city and the wall, not the temple. It dealt with the city and the wall. The decree of Artaxerxes Longimanus on March 14th of 440 by 445 BC. The decree is given. Okay, well, we know from the prophecy that 69 weeks of years, so 69 times 7, and God always deals in 360-day years on his calendar, so if you take 69 times 7 times 360, you get 173,880 days. So what God is saying is from that decree to go rebuild your wall, Israel, until your Messiah rides in on the donkey from Zechariah 9.9, 9, shall be 173,880 days to the day. And you can track down when Jesus rode in on the donkey, and it's the on April the 6th of 32 A.D., because we know he was crucified on Passover, which was the 14th of Nisan. He had to present himself as the lamb that was spotless on the 10th of Nisan. remember from the Passover in, in the Exodus event. That's when they evaluate if the lamb was without blemish. And that's what Jesus is doing. When he rides in on the donkey, it's the only time he allowed himself to be presented and worshipped as king. And he's showing that here is the spotless lamb of the world showing up to be crucified in four days for you to fulfill the Passover. And that happened on April 6th on our calendar in 32 AD. Now, if you take 445 BC to 32 AD, okay, that there's no year zero. You get 173,740 days. Then you take March 14th to April 6th. You add 24 more days to it. Then you adjust all of that for leap years because we messed up the calendar. (laughs) Somehow the Gregorian calendar got all messed up. But you adjust for leap years and you have 173,880 days to the day that when Artaxerxes Longimanus made that decree to when Jesus rode in on the donkey. And that is absolutely amazing. And go show your friends over Thanksgiving and they'll be so excited to study the word of God. Finally, they'll be excited to get into the word of God and figure all this out. But that is incredible that God had it, had it timed to the day and they missed it. And that's why when Jesus stopped on the donkey and he wept over Jerusalem and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you together, but you would not. And what he's saying there is all of Israel. I would have gathered you together. We would have ushered in the kingdom. He told them it wouldn't have been John the Baptist. It would have been Elijah if they would have received him and they missed it and rejected him. And as a result, actually, you and I are so blessed as a result because the church was formed out of that, and you and I are now co-heirs with Jesus because of their rejection. It's just incredible. Now, I found this interesting. So if you ever want to go dig into this, I think actually I got this from Clarence Larkin, who if any of you know him, he's an old Bible scholar. But he, he kind of went through the Bible and found that it's amazing. You can look at Israel's history in 490-year chunks of time. And from Abraham, he's the first Jew, to the Exodus. If you add up from how old Abraham was, 75 in Genesis 12, 14, you add how long from Abram to the Exodus event from Galatians 3:17, 430 years, you get 505 years. Well, you subtract out the time that Israel's out of favor with Ishmael, which is 15 years in Genesis 16, and you get 490 years. That's pretty interesting. Well, you do the same thing from the Exodus to the temple. 594 years, it took seven years to complete. You get 601. Well, then you go through the book of Judges, and you add up how many years were were the Jews in servitude, and you get 111 years. Again, you subtract that out, you get 490 years again. Pretty amazing, that's Exodus to the temple. Then the temple to the edict of Artaxerxes, that happened in 1 Kings 8, 1 through 66, uh, roughly 1,005 BC, Nehemiah 2, 1, 445 BC. You get 560 years, but you subtract out the Babylonian captivity of 70 years, and you get 490 again. So there's that 490-year period. Well, then the Artaxerxes to the second coming of Jesus, or to the, yeah, to the second coming of Jesus, really, You have 483 years we just looked at from the decree of Artaxerxes to Jesus riding in on the donkey. You have 483 years. Now we have this interval of time with the church and you know the final seven-year period will once again add up to 490 and we don't know how long the church will last. But isn't that pretty amazing that God has all these 490-year periods for Israel? Now, if you... You know, to me, studying prophecy and looking at things like that, it is absolutely a way to build your faith because there is more that is yet to be fulfilled than what has been. And that's the joy of diving in deep and studying God's word. And I got to talk to the youth group on Wednesday night and I shared with them Deuteronomy 29. In the very last verse of Deuteronomy 29, it's actually verse 29. You know, God says, the secret things belong to God. God but those that are revealed to us. Uh, we can take much joy in studying. And what God is saying there in that verse kind of echoes from Proverbs 25 two, that's the glory of God to conceal a thing and the honor of kings to search out a matter. And when you dive into God's word and you search it out yourself and you dig these things out because it's all written there so that you can have understanding of it, that you can have your faith built up in it, from Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And so the only way you can build your faith is to get into the word of God. It is so precious and it is inexhaustible and it is exactly what you need in the day in which we live right now. You you don't need anything else but the word of God to get into it, to right that ship, to turn around and to be successful in your walk with the king. Because everything that in your life starts to shed away, starts to burn away as a consuming fire, and you don't go down the path that we studied so much in Hebrews with the five warnings to the believer. The whole book of Hebrews centered around five warnings to you and I as the believer. And it starts small, and it culminates actually with apostasy and refusing God. And it starts with the danger of drifting in chapters 2, verses 1 through 4. The danger of hardening your heart then. So you start to drift and your heart gets hardened to God. Starting in chapter 3, verse 7 to chapter 4, verse 13. Then because your heart is hardened against God, you fail to mature. So you don't get into the word. You're not listening to the, to the Lord. And you're not pressing on in faith. And your heart starts to get hardened And no matter what people say to you and come around, you don't listen. And you go down this path where then in Hebrews 10, you start to create and commit willful sin against God. Sin that you know you shouldn't do, but you're doing it anyway. And then ultimately you start to refuse him. And what you are forsaking is the name of the Lord and your future place with him as a co-heir with Christ in the kingdom. And it's amazing. The whole book of Hebrews, there's nothing in it that tells you how to get saved. It's a whole book written to you and I, to the believer on how to live for him, how to stay strong and how to press on in the time that we are in. And I would just encourage you, if you are here and you haven't started that path or if you're watching this somewhere around the world, I just pray that if you're not born again, that you would do that right now, that you would accept the Lord It is so simple, it's Romans 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Make Jesus your Messiah, your savior right now. He was a ransom to all, but especially to those that accept him. And he paid the price that you and I could never, never pay on our own. And he showed up on time to the day From Daniel 9, he showed up and arrived to the day when God said he would ride in on that donkey from Zechariah 9.9, and he paid the price for you and I. He bore the sin that we could never bear on our own. He bridged the gap, and it's not what Jesus did on the cross and a whole lot of other things. It's only what Jesus did. It's only about Jesus, and he paid for it all And there's gonna come a day that with the sound of a trumpet, he's gonna descend from heaven with a shout that's gonna wake the very dead. And you and I are gonna be caught up in the air to meet him and to never be separated from 1 Thessalonians 4. And until that day, you and I, we cannot drift away. We can't harden our hearts. We cannot commit willful sin. We have got to be in the word of God and figure out when you can find your call in your life in the Bible, you will never be the same. The word of God, it's where your call is, I promise you. And I know a lot of you in here are thinking, well, what, what should I do? We'll start there. Start there and find your call in the Bible. Find your place, because that's where the Lord will speak to you. And you will have a, an urgency and a fervor to live for him that you've never had before, I promise. You'll just give him a chance. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. God, I thank you for your word and the amazing prophecy laid out in Daniel 9. Thank you, Jesus, that you showed up to the the day for us. You were obedient, you did it, you took our place so that we may rule and reign forever with you. And God, until that day we go home, I pray that you'd give each one of us discernment on what it is exactly that you would have of us in the days ahead. To stand strong for you, to not back down against tyranny and slavery. Lord, the entire world is against your word. Our culture is against your word. And God, I pray that we would be light bearers and faithful to go out and to share people the truth and to show them that we are so convicted on your word as everything that we are to live by, that it doesn't matter if the entire world is against us, we will not back down. And Lord, we thank you for this time together, Lord. Be with us in the week ahead as we leave this place, God. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, Amen. amen.